And so we've been looking at the story of Genesis, and we've kind of been looking at it through Moses' eyes as Moses tells the story of Genesis through all the generations. And in Genesis, we actually see God putting the building blocks for his foundation of restoration altogether. And that's what's been so fun about journeying through this book and really looking at this book as a narrative, which is really cool because it's a narrative that lays the foundation for God's major plan of restoration. And we saw, we saw how broken the world came when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and how all of humanity was shattered and the world became broken and we became plagued by this wickedness that infected everything that we touched and everybody that we touched from generations on. But then, after that, we saw how God, oh, it grieved God. Right? And I'm just going to kind of, you know, unpack briefly just kind of where we are up to now because now there's some really big pieces of the building block that God puts together. But it started with our brokenness. It started with the world's brokenness. It started with that fall of Adam and Eve. And our wickedness had gotten so bad, remember, it grieved God's heart so horribly because every imagination of our thoughts of our hearts were only evil continually. We were so bad, so deprived, so wicked that God had to do something drastic. What did God have to do? Do you guys remember? He did something pretty drastic when our wickedness had gotten so bad. What did he do? Who knows? What? Yeah. What? He flooded the world. He had to cleanse it from all of its wickedness. That's pretty drastic. But we saw something in that moment. We saw grace mentioned for the first time. And we were so wicked, God had to deal with it. But if it hadn't have been for God's grace, there would be no us right now. If it hadn't have been for God's grace, there'd be no world right now. Grace changes everything. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that put the world on a different trajectory. And what happened was after God cleansed the world, now we see, now we see some of these building blocks. Now we see how committed God is to his planet. Under that, in that beautiful moment when God was with Noah after the flood, and we realized something with the flood. We realized that, okay, God did cleanse the world, but his plan still has to continue. And there is this moment with Noah under that beautiful rainbow where God reveals his fierce loyalty to his creation when he says, Noah, I will never flood this world again. We know that God's committed to creation. God's committed to his planet. But not only do we see that God's committed to his planet, we know also in that beautiful moment when they were having their covenant agreement that God showed Noah and God showed all of us that he's committed to his people too. And he's committed to his plan. And he's not going to let anything stop it. And he actually reinstated, renewed that beautiful creation mandate that he gave humanity at the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply and go out in all the world and, and bear fruit and steward creation. He told the exact same thing again to Noah. Noah, go out, be fruitful, multiply, and steward creation. Because God is committed to his people. God's committed to his plan. I love this. But here's the thing. We know God's committed to his planet. We know God's committed to his people. We know this because of that beautiful moment that he shared with Noah, but he still has to do something. Because clearly the world is not going to exist 
and do well in the state that it was at that point. Because what we realized was during the flood, even though God cleansed the whole world with the flood, it doesn't take an outside cleansing to heal us from our issues. Because every one of us doesn't carry the wickedness on the outside. Every one of us carries the wickedness on the inside. And so even though God cleansed the planet with the flood, Noah still had the problems. And those problems came pretty quickly. And there was all sorts of family dysfunction that came out from Noah after that moment. And not only that, the dysfunction and the wickedness, of course, as always, continued to spread on a downward trajectory. And then we see the people of Babel totally rebelling against God, disobeying deliberately what God had told them to do to go out and be fruitful and multiply over all the earth. Instead, they decided to stay and build this big tower and make a name for themselves apart from God. God's got to do something. He's got to do something big because the wickedness is continuing to go on and the world is still falling on this downward trajectory and then God does something big. What is it? Does anybody know? It doesn't seem like it was so big at the moment, but it's big. Who knows? Not yet. Way ahead of us. But that's what he's thinking. <laughs> no. Here's what he did. What's that? Not weird? No, we already went there. So the language, yeah, he did that. Yes, you're right. He's, he, he spread them out because they wouldn't spread themselves out. And then, but still, humanity is still on this downward slope and the wickedness is still obviously infecting every generation. What is God going to do? We can't let it stay in this down, downward trajectory. So then he calls a 75-year-old man and his barren wife to be the ones that he's going to set things straight through. That's crazy. And I love that about him because God oftentimes does the most magnificent things through the smallest means. And that gives me great hope. <laughs> Because I'm a man of small means. And God, I've I got to stop limiting what he can do with and through me, with and through us. It's amazing. And his plan, then he tells Abraham his plan. He says, Abraham, I am going to make you my very special people. I'm going to make you a nation. And through you, my possession, I am going to bless and touch Every single nation of the world. Why? Because I'm committed to this world. I'm committed to these people. I'm committed to my plan. And I'm actually going to partner with the very people, humans, that ushered in destruction and brokenness and partner with them and allow them to help me in my plan of redemption. And he chose Abraham and Sarah to do that. That is so rad. And so now we see the plan coming together. Okay, God chose this old couple, but he's not going to just lead, like, do something through this old couple themselves. He's going to turn this old couple into a nation, and that nation is going to be a really special nation that is going to touch every other nation in the world. So God is just spreading his love out to touch everybody that he wants to reconcile back to himself, and he's doing it through his people. That is so incredibly generous so awesome so the now in our moment in genesis we're going to start in 37 and take it all the way to 50 now we have seen this people group this nation starting to come together because abraham had isaac and then isaac had jacob 
And then Jacob had his 12 sons, which were the patriarchs for the nation, kind of the foundation bed for the whole nation of Israel. And then Jacob's 12 sons, they had families, and they started having kids. And by the time we pick up the story today, Jacob's family is well over 70 people. So now you see the roots of this nation actually getting established. They're becoming a people, and they're going to be a nation. It's happening. God's plan is going on. But then Moses, as he writes Genesis, does something really interesting. He takes the rest of the book, 12 entire chapters, minus one chapter where he looks at Judah, and he focuses on one of the sons of Jacob, just one. He dedicates almost 25% of the whole book of Genesis to this one guy. And that guy was Joseph. And Joseph is basically the rest of Genesis. And I think he does that because Joseph actually has a pretty significant role to play in God's plan for redemption. And not only that, we see that Joseph was no stranger to injustice. (laughs) Joseph was no stranger to brokenness. Joseph was no stranger to unfairness. I mean, I'll I'll kind of like maybe paraphrase his life for you because there's a lot there. But a lot of you guys remember the story of Joseph. Imagine the story. You know, he's the youngest of all of his brothers, the patriarchs of Israel, Jacob's sons, and they already hated him. They already hated him because Jacob clearly loved Joseph more than the others and showed him so much favoritism. And then Jacob, if he's accused of anything, because the Bible doesn't say that he ever did anything wrong, he had so much impeccable integrity. I think if he should be accused of anything, it would just be too honest and trusting. And he had this dream, right? This vivid dream. And, and as he was sleeping, he's got a dream of, of him and his brothers. And they were out, um, what were they doing? They, they were kind of gathering sheaves out in the field, right? And binding them. And then he wakes up and he goes and tells his brothers about this dream. He's like, brothers, brothers, I had this amazing dream. We were all together and we were out in the field and we were binding sheaves. And then all of a sudden, the weirdest thing happened. My sheath kind of grew a lot taller than yours and then your guys' sheaves started to bow down to mine. That was, what? And they're like, you think you are so much better than us, don't you? And they were, their anger even just continued and their hatred festered. Their jealousy continued to fester for Joseph. In fact, they hated Joseph so much that they resorted to some horrible, horrible behavior. They plotted to kill him. You guys remember the story. They were out in the field working and then Jacob said, hey Joseph, why don't you go tell your brothers or go check on your brothers and see what they're up to. And they saw Joseph coming in the horizon and they plotted to kill their very own brother. There it is. And the first they mocked him. There's that loser. There's that dreamer. He's probably coming to tell us how much better he is than us and how we're going to worship him and bow down to him. Let's kill that fool. And as they were coming, and they were going to kill him, then one of the brothers, Reuben, the firstborn, said, wait a minute, guys. We probably shouldn't shed blood today. It's a good thing he said that. <laughs> and he saw the cistern. And he said, hey, let's throw Joseph in that cistern. What's, a cistern is like a deep well that you, they draw water from, but this cistern was dry. And so they made a plan. They devised their evil plot to throw him down this cistern. I'm not sure if they knew what they were going to do with him after they threw him in the cistern, but all they knew is they wanted their Joseph problems to be done with. They were so angry towards him. They had so much hatred for, towards him. They were causing so much problems. for. He was causing so many problems for them. So they tossed him down that cistern. 
rejected him. And I can imagine what Joseph felt like in that cistern. I think I have a little bit of empathy towards that. Not just because I'm the middle of three boys and I felt like I was rejected like Joseph was. I'm not going to get into my pity party for that. Um, but something, when I was five years old, I have this distinct memory. And in fact, it gave me nightmares for years to come. And we lived in a cabin in the woods in Lake Tahoe, way up in the woods, tiny cabin shared by all of my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. We were very poor, very, very poor. And my dad was very delinquent. And as a, we had this, this um, rusty playground in the back out in the woods, and it would snow like crazy in the winter times. And so my older brother, he was seven, I was five. When it would snow in the wintertime, the slide on the playground would freeze over, and we'd take our disc sleds, and we'd climb up to the top, and we would get hauling down the slide and just glide through this little pasture out there. And this one time, I slid down the slide, glided down the pasture, and then all of a sudden, I sunk. The ground came out from under me. And I fell into this deep pit. Like, I kid you not, there was nothing in our backyard that resembled any kind of hole before it snowed, but there was a sinkhole in our backyard that appeared, and I fell down this long, narrow, and I'll never forget looking around the sides of this hole, looking way up and seeing this tiny light, and I could see the different layers of dirt, and then just nothing but darkness. And I had, five years old, I had no idea if anybody saw me. I was terrified, out of my mind, screaming. You would think I'd be like majorly claustrophobic right now. But for some reason, I don't think I'm claustrophobic. For some reason, I was healed of that. But, but it was scary. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs for somebody to help me, screaming for my mom and dad. My brother heard me, didn't know where I was, ran in the house, got my dad. My dad heard me but couldn't find me. Finally found this little hole next to my little sled where I had fallen in and put a loop in a rope and lowered down the rope and said, put your arm in the rope and I'll pull you. And I'll never forget being pulled up by my dad. And this rum is just nutty. So I can empathize with Joseph a little bit. He was thrown in the cistern. There he's left crying for help. But here's where you see the callousness of Joseph's brothers. What do they do? Do they feel remorse? They feel bad? They kind of, do they deliberate whether or not they should take him out because it was all a cruel joke? No, they actually just have a nice lunch. <laughs> they sit by the well, and they have a lunch, and that's all it says. But then this traveler comes by, and then Judah, the other brother, the fourth brother, says, hey, wait a minute, if we just leave him for dead, that's not going to profit us anything. Let's see if that traveler will buy him. We'll sell him. Can you imagine what Joseph's day is like? His day is not turning out to be that good. I mean, it's, first of all, he's hated. Then he's rejected. Then he's mocked. Then he's thrown in the cistern and treated like he's worthless. But now he's going to be sold as a commodity instead of a person. That is the beginning of a terrible, horrible, not very good, very bad day <laughs> that Joseph is having. And so they, pull, they, they flagged the traveler by, and he happened to be a trader that was going into Egypt. And I'm probably spending way too much time tell, supposed to be paraphrasing the story to you, but it's a really fun story. And I think we can all really kind of like realize how much injustice Joseph was experiencing because he was such a 
solid man of integrity, but all of these horrible things are happening to him. Then he gets sold to the trader for 20 shekels of silver, and now he's gone. So rejected by his brother, treated as a product instead of a person, the human being that he was, and now he's going to who knows where. And then he gets sold again. He gets sold in the markets as a product to some military leader named Potiphar, goes in Potiphar's house, starts serving as one of Potiphar's slaves, and all of a sudden Potiphar sees something. Hey, this guy's pretty good at stuff. I think I'm going to put him in charge of things. And so Potiphar starts putting Joseph in charge of things, and then Joseph starts running Potiphar's house, which was awesome. I wonder if Joseph was feeling like, finally, the fairness that I deserve. Finally, I've got some recognition and some authority at last. But it didn't last very long. Because shortly after that, you guys know the story, Joseph was accused of something that he didn't do by Potiphar's wife. He was accused of trying to get it on with Potiphar's wife, when in reality, Potiphar's wife was the one that tried to get it on with him, but was probably embarrassed because she was being rejected by him. So she grabbed his cloak and said, This guy tried to... Kids... I don't know. I'm trying to keep it PG. (laughs) Having a hard time. Um, Anyways, what's the PG version of this? This this guy tried to take advantage of me when he didn't. So Potiphar, without questions asked, did not listen to Joseph, threw Joseph in prison. Now this is a horrible Horrible, terrible, not very good, very bad life. (laughs) Because now he's thrown in prison. First, he was rejected, hated. Then he was mocked. Then he was left for dead in a cistern. Then he was sold as a product. And now he's treated, well, first he's not listened to. And now he's treated like a criminal. This is his life. This is crazy. And so there he's sitting in prison. But what happens in prison? The warden looks at Joseph, watches him. Hey, this guy's pretty good at stuff. (laughs) I'm going to put him in charge of things. And so the warden starts putting him in charge of the other prisoners. He sees Joseph's skills. But keep in mind, Joseph was still in prison. Even though he was getting some authority and some leadership, in that prison, he was still a prisoner, kept in chains. And there he sat until one day something happened. You guys know this cupbearer and this baker that used to work for the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh himself, got, did something wrong to Pharaoh and got thrown in the prison. And both of them had nightmares one night. And they were just distraught about them. And Joseph saw it. And Joseph looked over one time, maybe in the morning when they were having their coffee. I don't know what it's like in an Egyptian prison. Maybe tea, <laughs> dirt. Anyways, there were... Waking up and, and the cupbearer just looked distraught. What's wrong? Joseph said to the cupbearer, oh my gosh. I had this dream and for some reason it's just heavy on me. I can't figure it out. There's these three vines and all this, this, these grapes just bursted out of these three vines. And then, and then all of a sudden I had the king's cup in my hand and I squeezed the grapes into the king's cup and then I woke up. I don't know what that means. And Joseph said, well... Don't interpretations belong to God? Let's see if God can tell you what that means. All right. And God told Joseph what that dream meant. The three vines are three days, he told the cupbearer. And in three days, you are going to be restored to your position as cupbearer for the king. How about that? And so then the baker overheard that, and the baker's like, well, I had a dream too. 
right? Three, I had three in my dream. And so he told Joseph the dream. I had three baskets. And in the baskets were all the king's favorite goods and baked goods and all the breads and all the desserts. And then I was holding these heavy baskets up and these birds started coming out of the air and eating the bread. What does that mean? Well, your dream's kind of heavy, baker. It means three baskets of three days, but in three days, you're going to be summoned to the king and he's going to kill you and then the birds are going to eat you like that bread. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. Joseph is honest. <laughs> he doesn't just play around. Three days went by, and the cupbearer and the baker got called out, and Joseph knew exactly where they were going. And Joseph grabbed the cupbearer, I'm sure just dying to get out of prison, and said, hey, I know where you're going. When you go back to the Pharaoh, tell him about me. Tell him about my story. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Remember me. And what did the cupbearer said? Oh, yeah, of course. I'll remember you. And took off. And days go by. Joseph hears nothing. Weeks go by. He hears nothing. Years go by. And Joseph hears nothing. This is his life. Hated. Rejected. Discarded. Treated as a product. Treated like a criminal. Not listened to. And now he's forgotten. Until one shining moment finally happens, right? The Pharaoh himself has a dream, and he cannot figure out what in the world. These must have been heavy dreams. They must have been like plaguing dreams, and Pharaoh is just like, this dream, it's weird. I don't know what this means. He called all of the magicians. He called all the men of nobility to to try to tell him what that dream meant, and nobody could, and then finally, years later, the cupbearer is like, oh wait, I know a guy. What was I thinking? I know maybe he's still alive. There's this guy in prison named Joseph. He can tell people their dreams. And so Pharaoh is like, get him. And so Pharaoh called for Joseph. And Joseph, Pharaoh said to Joseph, aren't you the guy that interprets dreams? And Joseph said, no, I'm not. God is. God holds all the dreams. And so Pharaoh said, well, I had this dream. I, had, I was dreaming, and there was these seven giant, large, fat cows grazing in the field, and then there was these seven skinny little cows, and there were just these puny little things, and all of a sudden they came up and ate the seven fat ones and didn't even look like they ate anything. And then all of a sudden these big old giant grains of wheat grew up, seven of them, but then underneath them there were these scrawny little dainty grains of wheat and they came up and devoured the seven big ones and stayed scrawny. What? I don't know what, nobody can tell me what this means. And Joseph said, I know what it means. The seven fat cows are seven fat years. The seven skinny cows are seven skinny years. The wheat is the same thing. Egypt and all this land is going to have seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. And he goes on and he tells Pharaoh what's going to happen for the next 14 years in all the land and how they need to find somebody that can manage the whole nation's affairs of harvesting food and storing food and distributing food when they have need. And Pharaoh's like, I don't know anybody that can do this. You can do it, Joseph. And right then, he just thrust Joseph by making a decree to all of Egypt that he would be the second in command in all of Egypt besides the king himself. Amazing. Joseph just got thrust into the highest position in the entire planet besides 
Pharaoh, of course, human position I'm speaking of. And then we realize why God allowed Joseph to go through all of that. And it wasn't just so that he could be held in prominence. God was up to something. God was doing, you know what God was doing? God was using Joseph to save the nations. Because the nations were about to starve and famine. And not just save Egypt. And not just save the nations that were surrounding Egypt. God was using Joseph to save his special nation. Because at that time, there was this little family that was becoming a nation of 70 some odd people. And they were all in Canaan about to starve. And God used Joseph and to preserve Israel, or who would be Israel, so that he could continue to carry out his plan. That's awesome. That makes the hardship that Joseph went through a little bit more significant, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't despite the fact that what Joseph went through was really hard, but it brings much more meaning to it. He was using Joseph to preserve the nation because he was going to use, God is committed to his plan. And God's not going to let anything stop it. And not only is God not going to let anything stop it, He's going to use whatever He has to use to keep it from to keep it continuing. That's the cool thing about God is He's amazingly creative and ingenuitive and and surprising. And that's that's why. Look at what Joseph, Joseph knew. This this is what's so interesting. Joseph knew when he later, after his brothers, Jacob's family, comes because they're starving and they need food, Joseph knows why all of this happened to him. Read a few of these verses. I put them on the screen. Genesis chapter 45. Listen, listen to this. Genesis 45, 4 to 9. Then Joseph, when he revealed himself to his brothers, I'm sure his brothers must have been totally shocked. His brothers didn't recognize him, but he recognized his brothers. I'm sure Joseph was covered in all that Egyptian get-up and had really matured and grown up to that point. He knew who his brothers were. Their eyes weren't open to see him. And then he reveals himself to them and he says, Come close to me. And when he had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Die! Guards! Seize them! No, that's not that's what we probably would have done. <laughs> that's not what he did. I am your brother Joseph. He's smarter than that. He said, the one that you sold in the Egypt, and now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. See that? To save lives. For two years, he says, now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing, reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Joseph knew. How cool is that? He knew that his hardship was being used to save the nation that God wanted to use to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So cool. So cool. But I want more than just looking at why Joseph went through all this hardship and why God used the story of Joseph, there's something that I want to look at that has a lot more relevance for us and for our lives. That has a lot of relevance, obviously. But something for kind of our day-to-day life, and that is how God did it. There's two things that God was doing in Joseph 
that I think we can really glean from. And one of them is this. This is how God worked that out in Joseph's life. He did it because he was with Joseph every step of the way. God was with Joseph through it all. But here's the thing. I'm sure there were lots of moments when it didn't feel like God was with Joseph. God, where are you? My brothers are accusing me and hating me and going to kill me and they threw me in a cistern. Where are you? God, I'm not supposed to be a slave. Where are you? God, I'm not supposed to be a criminal. Where are you? I'm sure there were doubts, but look at this. Look at how Moses tells the story. This is really interesting. A few verses here. Verse, I think, chapter uh, 43, 45. This is what Moses says. No, 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. This is kind of interesting. If you look at every stage of Joseph's journey, Moses mentions that God was with him. In Potiphar's house. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him, wait, I'm not done yet. (laughs) Where is it? Oh, no, go back one more. Go back. Yeah, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Then it goes on again. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This isn't Joseph saying that the Lord was with him. I'm not sure how much Joseph realized the Lord was with him during all those moments, but Moses, in hindsight, is saying God was with him here. God was with him here. God was with him here. It's clear that as Joseph was in Pharaoh's house and giving Pharaoh all those interpretations and leadership and authority and wisdom, God was clearly with him. And God is a God that is with us. And I think that is cause for us to celebrate today that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is with his people, dedicated to his people, fiercely loyal to his people that get to be a part of his master plan of redemption. That is awesome. It makes me think of that psalm, Psalm 23, that David writes. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because You are with me. I think it's the heart of what Paul cries when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because not only is God with us, but here's the second thing. Through it all, he's with us, and through it all, he's working for us. And that's what excites me the most. Because there's one thing about a friend being with us that's awesome, but there's something much different when God is with us. Because when our friends are with us through hardship and tragedy, they can be with us, but there's not a whole lot they can do. But when God is with us, there's a whole lot he can do. And what he does is he takes the tragedies, he takes the injustices, he takes the unfairness, he takes the difficulties, the stuff that break his heart, the stuff that breaks our hearts, and he takes all those and uses them to carry out his purposes. Nobody can do that but God. Nobody can. But he takes the crap, excuse me, and turns it into amazing 
pieces of his plan. That is awesome. That is, he, is so, he takes the lump of clay and turns it into something beautiful. God doesn't waste anything. That's what I love. And so that gives me great hope. Even when things happen that are outside of his will, even things that happen that are outside of his desire, even when tragedy strikes, God will use it as part of his plan. If so, you belong to him and are a part of his plan. Mm, So good. So good. So I want to celebrate just those two, two simple things, that God's with us every step of the way, but God's working in us through it all to carry out his purposes. I mean, it and doesn't waste anything. He uses it in amazing, creative ways. It makes me think of, um, and I, I don't know how long I've gone, but I just a couple of, I guess, stories just to bring it home to application because it's really meaningful to me. Because, for instance, when I was six, I was abandoned by my dad. And Satan would love for me to be immobilized and see myself paralyzed and as a victim of that abandonment for the rest of my life. But guess what? Through all of my upbringing, even though I dealt with serious insecurities and heartbreak because of abandonment, God was with me and God gave me the grace to one, forgive my dad, and then he gave me the grace that I needed to empathize with so many other neglected and abused kids. And then he gave me more grace to empathize with young men that didn't have any fathers. And then he gave me even more grace to be able to develop all these amazing fruitful ministries that helped neglected kids and fatherless men. Only by God's grace. So he didn't waste that abandonment. He didn't like the abandonment. But because it happened, he used it for something magnificent to carry forward his kingdom project. That's awesome. It's like my new friend, her name is New, from Cambodia. And her story is way more tragic than, than most of ours. When she was sold by her grandmother at 14 years old in Cambodia. And there she was, three days, and the first guy that bought her from her grandmother and, and locked in a room, and she, she knew God. She had accepted God before that. And she cried out to him, if there's any way that you can keep other girls from going through what I have to go through, please stop that. Please help them. And she had no idea how God would answer that prayer. He was with her and he didn't waste that. When she was 17, she was found out by a businessman that had a heart for helping her. And he was there in business, but he just had too much compassion to leave. He couldn't leave knowing what she was going through. And so he and his wife adopted her as their very own. And then they left their businesses, sold their businesses, because they were so compelled by her story and knew that her strength could inspire so many others because she was defying the statistics of the life expectancy of anybody sold into child prostitution, which was 20 years old. And now she's a grown woman in love with Jesus, and strong, and they used her story to be able to found and set up 52 safe homes in 11 different countries that are caring for countless kids that worship Jesus every single day that are prevented from going into human trafficking. God didn't waste that. Oh, come on. That's the God that we serve. He uses everything. That is so awesome. And so I think we can do some close evaluation in our lives. 
Well, what can you use in my story, and how can you use it? I give it to you. You know what I, you know what, you know what I think frustrates me in my view of God sometimes? Is that I think that only the good stuff that I do can I, can I offer to him. But in reality, we can offer everything to him. And he'll use everything in the most creative ways to do his awesome stuff. So let's just close in prayer. And let's remember the God that we serve, the plan that we get to be a part of, and all the material that he uses, good or bad, to make that plan happen.